So, Dave, uh, we're off to a great start with big um, wars of maneuver on both the Western and Eastern fronts as 1914 ends. Germany's in... uh, Germany didn't score the knockout blows, but Russia basically burned itself out. Um, There's stagnation on the... Uh, Western, the stagnation is starting to set in on the Western Front. They didn't take Paris. Uh, they're starting to the race for the coast. But um, now it's time to go and see what else is going on. Well, there's a reason why it's called World War One, because it spread uh, all over the place. The war just got wider right from the start, too. So I'm I'm relying on my usual sources, uh, AJP Taylor and Alan Clark and quite a few others. But I've also got some bits from uh, Richard Humble, J.L. Moulton, Brunello Vigetzi, and A.J. Barker. Is, and the first, um, is Richard Humble live up to his name? Uh, yeah, 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 not bad, not bad. Actually, he he wrote this piece about uh, Japan. Okay. So the moment Japan heard of the assassination and the beginning of the war, it was like opportunity knocking. They didn't yeah, they didn't wait long. Looks like everyone else is busy. <laughs> let's go grab let's go grab China. Well, let's go grab the German Everything. parts of China. But yes, also let's grab as much of China as we can, starting with the uh, German colonies, including their islands in the Pacific. If you remember our uh, Pacific scramble, part of our scramble for Africa series. Yeah, within days, like the first week of World War One, uh, Japan proposed to the, uh, the the British that they would enter the war if they could have permission to take over Germany's Pacific territories. And Britain agreed on August 7th, 1914. Didn't take long, did it? They uh, The British were worried about German ships, particularly uh, their surface, uh, you know, the the cruisers, the armored cruisers that could do, you know, tremendous damage to British shipping. So they gave Japan the green light and uh, Japan declared war on Germany and Austria-Hungary, which is kind of weird, but apparently there was an Austrian ship in the uh, harbor at Qingdao, the uh, German colony. So, so they saw a way to knock out a weaker, weaker colonial well, we're, power. Yeah. If we're going to attack your ship, we might we'll, we'll do you the honor of declaring war on your first. <laughs> yeah, you think they might be tempted to attack Russia, but Russia's allied with Britain and France, so that would mean going up against Britain. And they just thought, no, we'll we'll take the low hanging fruit. Next so, <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Um, so. Japan is going after the German colony at Qingdao. Um, They landed troops in September and surrounded it. And then the Japanese Navy conducted, as far as I know, the world's first uh, air raids launched from ships. So naval launched air raids, Uh, not an aircraft carrier. Those have not been invented yet. It's more a ship with a, a front deck that's cleared and some kind of catapult mechanism to ha- to help the plane take off without the benefit of a 
of a runway. Imagine being the first pilot to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you just volunteered to try this out. Yeah. So they bombed uh, German targets in Shandong province and German ships in uh, Kijou Bay from uh, a, a ship. It would be Cha- just to say it would probably be Chaozhou. Chaozhou. Okay. And uh, the Germans surrendered on November 7th. So that was pretty much... They're not trying to... They're not trying to fight forever. I guess there's a little bit of consolidation by then that Germany's feeling they have to do, right? They can't fight for everything. Oh, no. And and the, the, uh, the Germans in China are very aware that they're on their own. There's no help coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the month of October 1914... Uh, without much participation by the government, the Japanese Navy just independently went out and seized several of Germany's uh, island colonies in the Pacific. These would be the Marianas, the Caroline Islands, and the Marshall Islands, with virtually no resistance. Um, These island chains were part of German New Guinea, uh, administered by German colonial officers, but they didn't have troops. They only have small police forces of, you know, local Pacific Islanders to defend them. So there were a couple of small clashes, but nothing to interfere with the landing of Japanese troops and the takeover. And I thought that that was essentially, you know, Japan's participation in the war, but they did considerably uh, more. I was surprised to find this out. The Japanese Red Cross Society sent three squads uh, with uh, each one with a surgeon and 20 nurses, to Europe. And they also sent a cruiser to help escort the Australian troop convoy, which was carrying troops from Australia to Egypt. And in February of 1915, uh, Japanese ships landed Marines in Singapore to help the British suppress a mutiny by Indian troops. <laughs> I didn't know there was a 1915 mutiny by Indian troops. Yeah, oh, we're, well, we're going to get to some of this stuff, I think, in a in a future episode. But yeah, and then the British asked Japan for help in 1917 when Germany adopted uh, unrestricted submarine warfare. Why were so they this, sending Australian troops to Egypt, by the way, just in case? Uh, from Egypt, they're going to be used in the Mediterranean. Oh, okay. Well, first to defend Egypt. Against uh, well, next German. next chapter or next paragraph. <laughs> oh, oh yes, of course, of course. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the Japanese sent ships to Cape Town, South Africa, and into the Mediterranean. There were Japanese ships based on Malta. I did not know this. It must have come as quite a shock to the. Uh, the Maltese to have all of these foreigners coming in, but particularly the Japanese. Uh, and there, the Japanese ships performed escort duties, uh, 348 sorties. So they did a lot of work, uh, mainly rescuing people from torpedoed ships, like thousands of people. And 59 Japanese sailors died when one of their destroyers was hit by a torpedo from an Austrian submarine. But you're you're right. The Japanese were far more interested in China. This is the period when they made their uh, 21 demands 
to oh, yeah. Yuan Shikai. So we covered that in, in our episodes uh, about China. And uh, yeah, basically Yuan offered to join the Allies in World War One and was told, no, don't, don't, don't bother. And what a difference that would have made, right? Uh, Japan also supplied war material to its allies, which led to a wartime uh, economic boom uh, that helped to diversify Japan's industry. They increased their exports. Japan went from a debtor nation to a creditor nation for the first time, and their exports quadrupled between 1913 and 1918. So that led to a massive influx of capital into Japan, uh, and the industrial boom caused a, a wave of rapid inflation. In August 1918, there were uh, rice riots in many towns and cities throughout Japan. So Which prosper- were solved, solved presumably by just provision of rice, right? I mean, they just probably rationed it or gave it up. Or, or sending in troops. <laughs> yeah, a little, of, a little of both. A little, a little of both, I, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, the the reason that Australians went to Egypt had everything to do with uh, Turkey. Mm-hmm. So the Ottoman Empire was uh, the, the star of a competition. That it was like, uh, I don't know, The Bachelor or something like that. Uh, both Germany and Britain were, were competing to be best friends with Turkey. I think we mentioned before that general, a German general, Lehmann von Sanders, was the head of the German military mission, so he had some influence. And apparently the German ambassador, von Wangenheim, uh, was very eloquent. But the British had been there for a long time, and they had a big lead when it came to the Turkish fleet. And then perhaps most important for the, the Turkish leaders was the fact that British shipyards were putting the finishing touches on two new super dreadnoughts that Turkey had purchased. Oh, I heard a lot about these dreadnoughts from uh, Barbara Tuckman. Yeah, yeah. They, they, so, never got, they never got there. Well, the two ships had already been named. One was going to be called Sultan Osman I, and it would have 14 12-inch guns. And the second ship was called the Rashadie, and it would have 10 13-and-a-half-inch guns, uh, making making them two of the most powerful ships around, right? The Turks would have had uh, definitely a, a monstrous advantage over the Russians in the Black Sea. And boy, they they wouldn't have had to be afraid of anybody, really. So they could dominate the Aegean, protect themselves from Greece. Uh, if you remember the Balkan Wars, that's, that's going to still be an issue for the Turks. And they could dominate the Black Sea. The Russians didn't have any ships that could compare with with those. So the natural policy for Turkey then was neutrality. You balance Germany and Britain. And if you're smart, you know, you play them off one against the other. And, you know. Oh, sorry, Dave. By the way, these ships, (laughs) these ships were the best ships around. Obviously, uh, I've spoiled, as I always do, that they never got there. But also... um, they were incredibly expensive to the point where uh, it was like a patriotic uh, duty. You know, they they were very ad- it was highly advertised um, in Turkey. You know, pay your taxes. You know, they're go- they're going to to make 
us mighty and by these mighty ships. And there's like a line in Tuckman's book where they're like everybody in every village knew, you know, they, they everybody made their little contribution. And, it you know, it was millions of whatever's pounds or however much whatever the unit of currency was. But it was a it was an immense expense uh, to Turkey. So the kind yeah, of thing that would upset them a lot if they were never delivered, if you get my if you see where I'm yeah. going. <laughs> yeah, no, you're you're right. It wasn't just the huge sum. It was the fact that everybody knew yeah. where the money was going to go. And yeah, they were they were proud. They couldn't wait to get the their ships delivered. So uh, they're they're trying to play off Germany and Britain, but the Turkish leaders were genuinely divided. Uh, Jamal Pasha, the Minister of Marine, was on the best of terms with uh, British Admiral Olympus, but Enver Pasha, the Minister of War, uh, had equal confidence in General von Sanders and the German training of the Turkish army. And it turns out the Germans had uh, two advantages. They were persistent and they were energetic. The British, you know, continued their muddling along policy and they just weren't careful about what they said. Usually, usually we're quoting, you know, things that the shocking things the Germans said. But here's something from uh, your friend Winston Churchill. He's talking about the Turks. Scandalous, crumbling decrepit and penniless there you go. <laughs> how to win so, friends and influence people yeah yeah so we get to uh I, I know you enjoyed reading about this and, and so did i it's an interesting story uh the flight of the gobin <laughs> so in 1913 the germans decided to show the flag in the mediterranean they sent a new battle cruiser the gobin with the light cruiser Breslau, just go sail around, let people see, you know, how cool German ships are and maybe advertise our brand, that sort of thing. So the British responded by sending a, a much more powerful squadron, uh, three battle cruisers, four armored cruisers and four light cruisers. So the Germans sent two ships, the British sent 11. And the rival squadrons had themselves a little contest uh, first of spit and, pol and polish, you know, showing off, uh, stopping at different ports and letting, you know, people see how uh, efficient they were, how how good the ships looked and how powerful they were and, and so on. But then they started competing to show off for the benefit of the Turks. Uh, the British had the numbers, but even they developed a, a healthy respect for the Gerben and for Admiral Souchon, the German uh, commander. Uh, yeah. So the way the way that Tuckman. Oh, sorry. So about, back to back to the ships just for a second. Uh, Thirty million dollars. The money had been raised by popular subscription after the defeats of the Balkan Wars. Every Anatolian peasant had supplied his penny, <coughs> although not yet known to the public. News of the seizure caused. Oh, sorry. I'll I'll spoil that later. But um, <laughs> about the about the Goyven, about the Goyven. Um, uh, Tuckman talks a lot about how they were psyched out by the Goibin. Um, the battlecruiser Goibin, 23,000 tons, as large as a dreadnought, with a recorded trial speed of 27.8 knots, equal to that of the British Inflexibles. These are the, so the 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 fleet that's after the Goibin is three battlecruisers: the Inflexible, the Indomitable, and the Indefatigable. And they're each 18,000 tons for reference, eight 12-inch guns, and speed of 27 to 28 knots. 
Uh, they're supposed to be able to overtake and annihilate anything that floats. Um, they also had four armored cruisers and four light cruisers, and they're yeah. after this one Goibin. Um, and the Breslau. The Breslau is a much smaller light cruiser themselves. Um, and uh, yeah, here they go. But, but the Goibin <laughs> is slightly faster yeah. and hits harder. Yeah. It, it's got longer range and heavier guns. So the British are slightly intimidated or at least impressed uh, by this ship. So July of 1914 happens while they're sailing around the Mediterranean. Uh, with the assassination and, and the ensuing crisis, the July crisis, the British Admiralty were, were pretty far ahead of thinking what the war could mean if it broke out. So they're way ahead of the Foreign Office. And they're thinking, okay, what if the Gobin attacks? They could attack French shipping. What if the Gobin escapes into the Atlantic? Because we won't be able to catch it. And then it could do incredible damage to our merchant shipping. What if they join the Austrian fleet at uh, Pula? Pula's in Istra, now uh, part of Croatia. Uh, the, the Austrian fleet had three dreadnoughts and three older battleships. But if you team them up with the Gobin, that gives you know, Austria and Germany a, a, a pretty powerful fleet in the Mediterranean. So the British Navy are thinking ahead, okay, what's the Gobin going to do? Attack French shipping, escape into the Atlantic, or join the Austrians? So we have to watch three possible moves. And British Admiral Milne was instructed to follow and shadow the Gobin, and he was told to prevent all three possibilities. Shall I tell you about Admiral Milne? Yeah. A bachelor of 59, a polished figure in society, a former groom-in-waiting to Edward the Seventh, and still an intimate at court, son of an admiral of the fleet, grandson and godson of other admirals, a keen fisherman, deerstalker, and a good shot. Sir Ultrabald Berkeley Milne appeared a natural choice in 1911 for the Mediterranean Command, the most fashionable, if no longer the premier post, in the British Navy. He was appointed by Churchill, uh, but it was denounced. His appointment was problematic. So the Admiral Fisher, we've heard all about him, the Sea Lord, uh, creator of the Dreadnought Fleet, uh, he thought it was a betrayal of the uh, the Navy. He wanted Jellicoe. Oh. Okay. He wanted Jellicoe, um, and he got really angry uh, he lashed out at Winston for succumbing to court influence, erupted in disgust for Milne as an utterly useless commander, um, <laughs> referred to him variously as a backstairs cad and a serpent of the lowest type who buys Ooh. his time secondhand for one penny. Um, everything in Fisher's letter, <laughs> everything in Fisher's letters, which always carried flaming admonitions to burn this, happily ignored by his correspondence. Appears 10 <laughs> times life-size. Uh, but Milne was just an... Ad but Tuckman says he wasn't a serpent nor Admiral Nelson. He was an average, uninspired ornament of the senior service. Um, and so... Yeah, but Fisher's right. He got the job for his court connections and because he looked good. Yeah. <laughs> rather than being the kind of fighting admiral that Jackie Fisher liked. <laughs> yeah, so he's given the job... Okay, guard against three possibilities, all in different directions, of course. <laughs> yeah. What's interesting is that a fourth option never even occurred to the British. But then they set it off themselves. So as you uh, 
Okay, you didn't hint. You just basically spoiled. Yeah. So if you if you don't know Justin, don't ever talk movies with him, because if he's seen them, he will instantly spoil the ending for you. <laughs> Captain Spoiler, we call him. Uh, yeah. So Churchill is first Lord of the Admiralty, and he made the key decision. He wasn't going to let the Turks have two super powerful ships. He intended to seize them before they left British ports. So on the 1st of August, British troops marched aboard the two ships. And with that one stroke, all of the British efforts to encourage Turkish neutrality were, were you know, essentially torpedoed. Uh, Enver Pasha and his party were vindicated. The British weren't just unreliable, they were treacherous. And as you say, Turkey had scraped and saved to get the money for the two ships. And this is now... <laughs> like we've been waiting for the delivery of our our new prized possessions and they've just been stolen from us. So uh, Jamal Pasha had no answers. There's there's no reply to this. Uh, the Germans promised continued support and then they made an amazing offer. You're not going to get the two ships from Britain, but what if we gave you the Goeben and the Breslau? Mm-hmm. Gave them to you. <laughs> to, wow, replace, can, yeah. to replace the ships that the British had stolen. Uh, understandably enough, Turkey leapt at the offer. Why they wouldn't they? The deal, yeah. yeah. And it totally discredited Britain with them now. Oh gosh, yeah. And uh, and now they've pretty much declared for Germany. Yeah. So the German admiral Souchon was ordered to head for Constantinople, and this begins a series of uh, chases through the Mediterranean and a story known as the flight of the Gerben. So if you're reading World War I history and you read about the flight of the Gerben, you're thinking, is this like a new airplane or, you know, what is this? No, it's it's two German ships, primarily the Gerben, uh, trying to avoid the British fleet in the Mediterranean and possibly, you know, do some damage. So Souchon wanted to see if he could if he could do something off the coast of Algeria. You know, maybe there are some French ships there that I can wipe out uh but his french counterpart admiral de la Perere, uh acted wisely and organized a heavily escorted convoy so the french are shipping uh algerian troops to france so he organized the convoy and made sure that it had a, a huge escort so souchon turned away the british finally oh, spotted- but i think he i think he did bombard uh algerian yes. city yeah. Uh, but you know what he did before he bombarded it? He flew the Russian flag. Oh, he, my. He took down. Yeah. So August 3rd, uh, Admiral Sushan's wireless told him that war had been declared on France. Uh, at, he pressed forward, as did the French, but his speed was greater. At 2 a.m. on August 4th, at the climactic moment of fire, he received Admiral Tirpitz's order to proceed at once to Constantinople. He was unwilling to turn back without tasting that moment of fire so ardently desired by us all. He kept course until the Algerian coast came into view, ran up the Russian flag, approached within range, and opened fire, sowing death and panic. Our trick succeeded brilliantly, enthused one of his crew, who later published an account of the voyage. According to the Kriesbrach, or Conduct of War Manual, the putting on of enemy uniforms and the use of enemy or neutral flags uh, with the aim of deception are declared permissible. 
as the official embodiment of German thinking on these matters, the Kriegsbruch was considered to supersede Germany's signature on the Hague Convention, of which Article 23 prohibited the use of disguise in enemy colors. So right. after so you... they shell, <clears throat> uh, they turn back to Messina, to Kohl, to go to Constantinople. So, yeah, so you might wonder, why do they have a Russian flag on board a German ship? And, yeah, the answer is that false flag is a, uh, I wouldn't say a standard tactic, but, you know, they, they all do it. Wait wait till you see how many British ships will be flying American or Norwegian mm-hmm. flags, you know, so that they don't get attacked by submarines. <coughs> Sorry. Yeah. So... This is an interesting uh, date when he's doing this because Germany has declared war on France, but it's the day before Britain has de- declared war on Germany. <laughs> so Churchill sent an order to Admiral Milne to stay in touch with the Germans because war is imminent. As soon as war is declared, we will contact you and, and then you can you know, open fire. But you can't open fire you know, before. So the race was on. Uh, the Germans turn and they're headed, as you say, to uh, uh, Istanbul. Yes. Yeah, that's the long-term goal. First, they're going to have to stop in Italy, a, a neutral country. Messina, Messina yeah. Messina. Yeah, and then uh, re- refuel, uh, coal. So uh, it's a race. The British are trying to stay within sight because the moment they get the word, they're going to attack. And apparently the Germans put on a fanatical effort and outran the British, like lost them. They went I that think, I, I think I read of um, like men dying because <laughs> of exhaustion and cold, like, uh, you know, heat exhaustion and four, four dead, four yeah. German stokers died from the, the heat of, you know, shoveling coal into the, into the uh, boilers and many more collapsed. But but they did what they intended. They they got away from the British. So now war is declared. Milne gets the message, but he has no idea where the Germans are going. So he's got three possibilities to defend against. So he spread his ships out. He's going to block the entrance to uh, uh, Austria, to the Adriatic Sea. He's got a guard against them turning for uh, Algeria again, but he's also got to make sure they don't leave the Mediterranean. He's got to keep them bottled up. And it's interesting, uh, Moltke the Elder, uh, this is the German mm-hmm. chief of staff from 1870, uh, he wrote, in war there are always three courses open to the enemy, and he usually chooses the fourth. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, it's yeah, not Moltke bad. Was, Moltke was good at his job. He was a nasty... Colonial well, piece of work, but <laughs> yes, yeah. So the Germans went east, headed for Constantinople. As they passed by the uh, Ionian Sea, they were spotted by a British squadron under Admiral Truebridge, uh, but he chose not to engage because he, he would have got blown out of the water. Mm-hmm. His ships were heavily outgunned. So Turkey got the two German ships. Uh, British newspapers made a big deal out of the flight of the Gerben. They they uh, asserted that the Germans had fled before British might, but the government knew better. So uh, they contacted the Turks and they uh, basically threatened. Well, they alternated threats and uh, what 
uh, humble calls cajoling. <laughs> mm. uh, that had no effect. Enver Pasha and the pro-German party were firmly established. Uh, on August 16th, Admiral Olympus was informed that the British naval mission would no longer be needed in Constantinople. So pack your bags, see it. And then the Turks delayed a little longer, thinking it over. But on October 28th, the renamed ships uh, sailed into the Black Sea to bombard the Russian port of Odessa. And that <clears throat> meant that the Turks were definitely on their way to war. So the British withdrew their outposts from the eastern side of the Suez Canal uh, as a large Turkish force appeared. And by November 5th, Turkey was at war with Russia, Britain and France. Um, shall I read you the conclusion of the chapter on the Goibin? Oh, yeah. Uh, so. Uh, on October 28th, the former Goibin and Breslau under Admiral Sushan's command entered the Black Sea and shelled Odessa, Sevastopol, and Feodosia, causing some civilian loss of life and sinking a Russian gunboat. Apparently, this was not universally loved by the Turkish court. It says, aghast at the fait accompli laid at their door by the German admiral, a majority of the Turkish government wished to disavow it, but was effectively prevented. The operating factor was the presence of the Goibin at the Golden Horn, commanded by her own officers, manned by her own crew, disdainful of restraint. So it's a Turkish ship in technicality, but it's still commanded and run <laughs> right. by German. Right. right. As, as Talat Bey pointed out, their government, the palace, the capital, they themselves, their homes, their sovereign and caliph were under, their, under her guns. Dismissal of the German military and naval missions, which the Allies were demanding as to proof of Turkey's neutrality, they were unable to perform. The act of war having been committed in the Turks' name, Russia declared war on Turkey on November 4th, followed by Britain and France on November 5th, which, ah. the, yeah, so which sets off, right, I mean, as we're going to talk about an interwar, this is basically uh, the beginning of the scramble for the Middle East, right? Like, oh, yeah, momentous consequences uh, of this, of Turkey being in the war on this side, Um Thereafter, the red edges of war spread over another half of the world. Turkey's neighbors, Bulgaria, Romania, Italy, and Greece, were eventually drawn in. With, thereafter, with her exit to the Mediterranean closed, Russia was left dependent on Archangel, icebound half the year, and Vladivostok, 8,000 miles from the battlefront. With the Black Sea closed, her exports dropped by 98% and her imports by 95%. The cutting off of Russia with all its consequences... The vain and sanguinary, sanguinary tragedy of the Gallipoli, the diversion of Allied strength into the campaigns of Mesopotamia, Suez, and Palestine, mm -hmm. the ultimate breakup of the Ottoman Empire, and the subsequent history of the Middle East followed from the voyage of the Goibin. Yeah, so this one ship spread the war to the Tigris and the Euphrates, to the Caucasus, uh, as you said, Palestine and Arabia, uh, the the Aegean, yeah, it it's a very momentous, very, uh, yeah, and, uh, and the the uh, influence is still with us today. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's a it's an unfortunate and very bad decision for the Turks, or or you know, partly they're forced into it. Uh, yeah. They didn't have much to gain from a German victory. Right. And the only real hope of preserving their empire was was to stay out of the war. 
Uh, I guess the, the opportunity to strike at the powers that had bullied and patronized them was just too tempting. Yeah, and they were slowly. I mean, it, it's it's always that question of like whether you're gonna slowly be dismantled by Britain, France, or whether you're gonna do something dramatic, and find some vitality. Yeah, yeah, it up. Well, they had a big army, over a million. They had 36 regular divisions, but it was spread very widely. I mean, it's an enormous empire. Yeah. Um, they had forces in European Turkey, in Western Anatolia at uh, Erzurum, near the Russian border in the Caucasus, and Syria. They had two divisions each in Yemen, Central Arabia, and Mesopotamia. So they're, they're all over. Uh, Enver Pasha, the Minister for War, took command of Third Army, 150,000 men, and launched an attack in the Caucasus against Russia. In mid-December, very, very bad idea. Mm. The troops were ill-equipped. The conditions were awful. Uh, very high mountains, winter blizzards. The Russian 7th Army was smaller, but the three Turkish corps arrived separately. So piecemeal, instead of attacking together, it was one at a time. And they were defeated at uh, the Battle of Sarikamish. And then their retreat through the icy mountain passes was a complete disaster. One source said that only 12,000 men made it back to Erzurum. Uh, one entire corps surrendered, and the Russians counted 30,000 frozen bodies in the mountains. Wow. So that that backfired very, yeah. very badly. I've started reading uh, military history of the Eastern Front of World War One, so it's a lot of Russia from mm -hmm. the Russian perspective. And one thing that they say is, like, everybody talks about how badly Russia did against the German army. But everybody did badly against the German army. It's not when Russia was fighting Austria or Turkey, they did fine. So yep. it's it's more about how good the Germans were in this uh, militarily than how, you know, bad Russia was. Although, of course, there were issues. But he, you know, the, the <laughs> author, <laughs> the author points out that all of these empires had issues. So, uh, yeah. So there's another uh, theory there is that. Russia had major issues. Uh, Austria and Turkey had similar and even larger issues. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But that disaster uh, led to real trouble because who do you blame for this entire failure? Uh, the Armenians. Oh, yeah. Which we'll talk about in another episode, I think. Um, in February of 1915, the Turks sent 20,000 men into the Sinai to cut the Suez Canal. Uh, Egypt was still nominally part of the Ottoman Empire, even if the British had been in control since 1882. So we'll just ignore that technicality. Uh, there was one British and two Indian divisions defending it. And the Australian and New Zealand uh, Army Corps was training there. So those volunteers had been shipped over and they're not deemed ready yet, but they are there and training. So the Turks were easily repulsed from the Suez Canal. But that led to another big decision. The British decided to defend the canal from the eastern side. So they sent their troops over and eventually they decided to advance from there which we'll cover in another episode because that's extremely, extremely significant. 
Um, the British also landed a division at the head of the Persian Gulf, uh, so in southern Iraq, in Mesopotamia, uh, to occupy the oil fields around Basra. So oil is already <clears throat> a major, major uh, <laughs> player in strategy. Remember, it, this is around the time, you know, not too different from the time of the Mexican Revolution when America's first response was to go and occupy the oil fields. <laughs> the oil fields, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, of course, once you're there and there's nothing happening, the British decided to advance, uh, which we'll cover in the next episode. AJP Taylor calls that decision uh, and what it led to a meaningless and disastrous campaign. The most important Turkish contribution to the war, though, was the closure of the Straits, the Dardanelles and the Bosporus. Russia's Black Sea ports were cut off, and that was virtually the end of Russian grain exports. Ru Russian exports fell by 98%. Imports were reduced by 95%. You mentioned uh, Archangel and Vladivostok, right? So Archangel is a port on the White the White Sea. It's frozen over uh, at least half of the year. <clears throat> and Vladivostok is what 5,000 miles? Yeah, he's, to he's the east, saying 8,000 miles from the 8,000 miles. Yeah. I was off by a few. <laughs> Just 3,000 miles. Don't make a plan. <laughs> Don't make a plan to on, get there. <laughs> on Russian railroads. So, yeah. So, the closure of the straits, uh, crippling, fatal. It's it's just horrific for Russia. It, it's going to have another major influence on the war. We're going in a different direction. The war spread elsewhere uh, immediately. It spread to the German colonies, particularly in Africa. T Taylor uh, has an interesting comment on this. So the British immediately decided, well, we have to take the German colonies in Africa. Like, the war just started. Well, yes, but, That's you know. what we do. Right. So Taylor puts it this way. Whether it was to have bargaining chips at the end of the war, rather than, you know, for their actual value, or, I quote, perhaps merely because it was a British tradition to make colonial gains in wartime. Yeah. <laughs> and boy, they, they didn't waste any time. Uh, Australian and New Zealand forces captured New Guinea and Samoa. The Royal Navy destroyed the German wireless stations at Yap and Nauru. On the 23rd of August, it's like three weeks the war has been going on and you're already attacking German colonies. Uh, also in August, <clears throat> uh, Togoland was captured. Togoland was between British uh, Ghana and French Dahomey. September 27th, a Franco-British force landed at Douala, the main port of the German Cameroon. The defenders, there were 200 Germans and 3,300 African soldiers and armed police. They retreated to the capital, Yaoundé. Uh, it wasn't until December 1st, 1915, that Allied columns reached Yaoundé. Uh, the garrison retreated into uh, Spanish Guinea, where they were interned. So that's a, a tradition. If you uh, hide in a neutral country, the neutral country basically keeps you there. You cannot you know, stay and then go back to fight. 
So, oh, and that, I, I think you would like some of Taylor's stuff. His book has a picture um, of a, a village in Cameroon, you know, burning. And the caption says, <clears throat> civilization comes to Africa, <laughs> <laughs> burning village in Cameroon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, German Southwest Africa. This is uh, Namibia, which we covered in our scramble. Uh, it was defended by 2,000 German soldiers, backed by 5,000 German colonists. So that's going to take a little more of a, of a major operation. South Africa, which was now a self-governing dominion. They got that status in 1910. Uh, so the South Africans sent troops in, captured the German port of Luderitz, but operations were brought to a standstill by a rising of pro-German South Africans. Oh, yeah. So these are Boers for whom the Boer War wasn't over. I mean, yeah. well, it was, In what, Germany. 13 years earlier, right? So you've got veterans Germany of that war. their only friend, right? They're, yeah, they're still mad at British for that. Yeah. So uh, it wasn't until 1915 that the South Africans were able to put together an invasion of Namibia. Uh, Windhoek was captured in May, and in July, the German commanders surrendered. So it seems pretty easy to take the German colonies in Africa, except for one. That would be German Southeast Africa, uh, also known as Tanganyika. So the, the, uh, the continental part of Tanzania. Very, very different story. <clears throat> and this is almost entirely due to the German commander, a fellow named Paul von Lettau Vorbeck. Uh, he arrived in January of 1914 and quickly made himself unpopular with the German colonists. <laughs> so the uh, author I was reading talked about his Prussian arrogance. But he was different uh, in the sense that he seems to have been convinced that the war was coming and that German East Africa would have a part to play in it. So his job, as he saw it, was to tie up as many British troops as possible for as long as possible. Uh, when the war started, they were obviously completely cut off from Germany by the British Navy. Uh, von Leto Bovbeck had 2,500 Askaris, so these are African troops uh, officered and trained by the Germans, and 260 German officers. There were 2,000 African police and 3,000 German colonists. So the British Navy opened the hostilities by shelling uh, Dar es Salaam and then doing the same at Tonga. Uh, in both cases, this is I found this interesting, the British Navy concluded a truce with the residents of the two towns, or I guess Dar es Salaam qualifies as a city. <clears throat> so the British Navy negotiated a truce on condition that the Germans there refrained from hostile acts. And the governor, the German governor, Dr. Schnee, uh, agreed to this. But London refused to ratify the truces. <laughs> like, you're just the Navy. You don't get to conduct wartime diplomacy, too. So given that the uh, the truce wasn't ratified, Dr. Schnee let his military commander run the war his own way. <clears throat> and typically enough, the British were particularly worried about the presence of a German cruiser, 
the Königsberg, uh, a fast and powerful ship that could have done tremendous damage to Allied shipping in the Indian Ocean. Uh, they knew that the ship was somewhere in Tanganyika. It took months for them to find her. The Germans had holed up 17 miles up the Rufiji River. <clears throat> so they weren't interested in going out to prey on shipping in the Indian Ocean. They just wanted to, to survive. Uh, in July 1915, the Königsberg was put out of action, but the British left the ship there. The crew just simply fled ashore, and then they came back later and salvaged the guns. So the crew of the ship and the guns joined von Lettau Vorbeck. Now, he had actually been planning an attack, an offensive, uh, on Mombasa in Kenya, and he wanted the cruiser to to support his attack by showing up in the harbor. <coughs> I beg your pardon. So the British countered with uh, a seaborne assault on Tonga in November of 1914. The attack was planned in London, organized in India, and the British commander, Major General Aitken, was confident that his Indian troops would, quote, make short work of a lot of <clears throat> N-word. He considered his Indian soldiers vastly superior to uh, African soldiers. But the Indian troops were poorly trained, poorly equipped, and after their sea voyage, <clears throat> many of them were sick and uh, unhappy. Let's just say morale was poor. Uh, the British Navy chose to negotiate for the surrender of the town of Tonga before their preliminary bombardment. And all that meant was that von Leto Vorbeck had ample warning that the landing was coming. <clears throat> so he rushed in uh, 750 Askaris by train, by rail, to reinforce the garrison, which was only 250 strong. So in the end, the British delay meant that the Germans were ready and waiting when they finally landed. In the British official history, this battle, Tonga, is described as, quote, one of the most notable failures in British military history, which is saying quite a bit considering how many notable failures there have been. <laughs> yeah, I think it's kind of trying to minimize, you know. Yeah. Uh, a thousand Askaris defeated 9,000 Indian troops. German losses were 71 killed. 55 of the Muscaris, and 76 wounded. The Indian troops lost 360 killed, 487 wounded, and 148 missing. I found an, in an interesting reference to this battle. It's also known as the Battle of the Bees. I guess they were fighting under some trees and they uh, ticked off the bees because both sides were attacked by swarms of uh, angry bees. Uh, obviously, the battle was a, a, a massive morale boost for the Germans in, in Tanganyika, but it was a windfall for them. They captured all sorts of modern equipment. I just have to interrupt to say how utterly depressing I find this whole story of Africans and Indians fighting killing each, each other, other <laughs> on behalf of white supremacist powers that actually had committed multiple genocides on both of these groups of people be prepared to, to be depressed even more because it's not the, the last time there's there's lots more to, to come 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, von Leto Vorbeck realized that, you know, okay, we won that one, but we can't afford too many more major battles. Uh, the British, meanwhile, decided to go on the defensive <clears throat> until they could organize, you know, overwhelming numbers. So for a year, there was guerrilla fighting. And then the end of the conflict in Namibia made South African troops available. In 1916, Lieutenant Colonel Jan Smuts, a former Boer commander, uh, was appointed to command in East Africa. And in March, he organized a, a massive offensive from multiple directions. The British came from northern Rhodesia, today Zambia, from Lake Victoria, uh, they landed from the sea and they came uh, south from Kenya. When I say the British, there's yes, there are British troops involved, but there's also uh, African and Indian troops, the majority of them. Uh, von Leto Vorbeck retreated, but he took advantage of every opportunity to inflict casualties. Whenever the pressure built up, the Germans would slip away. Uh, in one of these fights, a, a battle uh, of Mahiwa, big pardon, uh, four days long, a British force of 4,900 infantry suffered 2,700 casualties. So when the Germans hit them, they hit hard. By November, though, the British controlled 85% of the the colony, including the capital, the entire coast, all of the railways, and the Great Lakes. But von Lennon... Go ahead. Sorry, are these huge casualty numbers because this is basically Britain just spending Indian lives <laughs> like like it ain't no thing? Is that part of in, what's happening here? In terms of absolute numbers, it's not huge. Yeah. In terms of yeah. percentage of the Rates. force involved, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I think they're willing to throw, uh, you know, do riskier maneuvers and throw people's lives away more in these well, given what's coming on the Western Front, I think they're pretty willing to throw any lives away. <laughs> yeah, there's those. There's also that. Yeah. So von Leto Borbeck kept his army in being. He was finally driven out of Tanganyika in November of 1917. He simply crossed into Mozambique, the Portuguese colony, with 16,000 Ascaris and 278 Europeans. Now, he should have been interned there, but obviously the Portuguese don't have an army of, you know, more than 16,000 to uh, intern him. I, I don't know if they asked politely, but uh, the answer was no. In fact, he attacked them. He replenished his stock of weapons and ammunition by taking them from the Portuguese. Now, this is legitimate for von Leto Vorbeck because Portugal did go to war with Germany. Uh, in March of 1916. Oh, no, actually, it was the Germans who declared war because Portugal had confiscated German ships that had been interned in her ports. Yeah, so the war widened to Portugal as well. And for reasons I cannot understand, something like 100,000 Portuguese soldiers ended up fighting in France. Oh, the, on, know, on, the, on, behalf on the Allied side. France, yeah. Yeah. Wow. When the British finally almost had the Germans trapped in Mozambique, von Leto Vorbeck escaped back to Tanganyika and then invaded northern Rhodesia. (laughs) So he's taking the war to them. Uh, And in fact, he still had his army in the field 
when news of the armistice of November 11th, 1918 arrived. And in fact, one of the armistice demands was that Germany had to order von Leto Vorbeck to lay down his arms because the, the British couldn't defeat him. So he surrendered on November 23rd. It's a, a fascinating story that he fought that long, held out against you know massive overwhelming forces. If he meant to tie up large numbers of British troops, he did. The East African campaign cost Britain 72 million pounds and it cost them more lives than they'd lost in the entire Boer War. They suffered 62,220 casualties. And these figures don't include African porters. They just weren't counted. We've seen that before. But over 60,000 casualties in a, in a contest that doesn't matter? You know, you could have assured, you could have assured yourself of Tanganyika being neutral and simply occupy it after the war. But no, got to go and take that colony. Well, they paid for it in and money only, and lives. And it's, yeah, it's funny that the only way they, <coughs> the only way they stopped it was by ordering <laughs> ordering Germany to to call the guy off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and one of the great mysteries for me is, as you say, why did the German Askaris fight? Yeah. So long and so hard. Interesting. Uh, uh, the, the widening war uh, had a major influence on British strategy. <clears throat> on the 26th of December, 1914, mm-hmm. uh, the War Council uh, Secretary, Maurice Hankey, submitted a long paper to the War Council. Given the deadlock on the Western Front, he suggested that Britain should find another outlet for the large forces which they were in the process of raising. Mm. He recommended using British sea power to change the balance. Not a direct landing on the German coast. That was Jackie Fisher's uh, darling. That's what he wanted to do. But rather, Hanke suggested the Mediterranean. We can go through the Balkans against Austria-Hungary, or we can go against Turkey. So this is a fairly standard British strategy, right? Use our best weapon, the Navy, and fight outside of Europe. So while the continental armies are uh, fighting each other, uh, we'll go and make gains elsewhere. So that when we show up at the peace treaty, we're holding all these territories and we'll you know, keep the ones we want or, or keep a, a good share of them. On New Year's Day, Uh, David Lloyd George, who was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Finance Minister, he came to the same conclusion that we have to, you know, fight somewhere other than uh, France and Belgium. And he circulated a memorandum suggesting much the same thing, only he included Syria as a possible target. Uh, Syria at the time was a loose designation for the countries that are now Syria and Lebanon. Winston Churchill, first well, Lord yeah, of, Pal- Palestine too, right? Syria, Lebanon. No, Palestine. they they no. Palestine's they called, a separate question. Palestine and Transjordan were okay, were considered okay. separate. Right, Syria, Lebanon. Right. Okay. It, it matters in the future because of For how sure. they're going <laughs> to carve, <laughs> carve up the cake or, or yeah. slice slice the pie. Uh, Winston Churchill clearly foresaw 
what was what was coming on the Western Front, imminent bloodletting and futility. Uh, quote, he said, I think that it is quite possible that neither side will have the strength to penetrate the other's lines in the Western theater, although no doubt several hundred thousand men will be spent to satisfy the military mind on that point. Uh, which is pretty prophetic, except he was off by a couple of zeros, or at least one one zero. So he wanted to use his navy for amphibious landings. Uh, Kitchener was on the same wavelength. He saw that the French weren't going to be able to break through German defenses or force them to retreat. He compared the German lines to a fortress which couldn't be stormed or surrounded. And there aren't enough British troops in France yet. It's still a very small part of there's the. There's a Allied. lot. There's a lot about Kitchener in the Tuckman book. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he didn't want to. He didn't want to waste all of the British expeditionary force in one battle in France. So he was for bringing them back uh, before they could be destroyed by the Germans and use them as the basis as a card core to recruit a larger army over a long period of time. He was one of the people who thought that the war was going to go long from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I guess we talked about that earlier, but we will again. Yeah. Yeah. He's one of the few that saw it early. Uh, Also had, yeah, some prophetic vision of what the war was going to look like. Uh, The commander of the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, Sir John French, promised that he could break through in Flanders. If only he was given more guns, more shells and more men. But Kitchener, Lloyd George, and Churchill were basically in agreement. They wanted to turn Germany's flank or find a back door. That that expression comes up quite often. Uh, in World War II, Churchill's going to be talking the same thing. He, he, he would talk about the soft underbelly of Europe. Well, <laughs> it's not that soft. If you, if you look at a relief map, it, it's not inviting. But yeah, sea power is going to allow them to pull off some kind of uh, coup, some kind of smart trick or a brilliant maneuver, and they could defeat Germany on the cheap in terms of money and men. Now, that last part, they're not going to be admitting to their French allies, (laughs) Uh, nor are they going to admit that these little sideshows that you're considering aren't going to do much harm to Germany, even if they are successful. But they would, you know bring the traditional gain to the British Empire. We saw the same strategy against Napoleon. Uh, That's when the appeal from Russia arrived. The Russians were wondering, could anything be done to take the pressure off their southern flank? At that point, the Turks were attacking in the Caucasus, and it hadn't turned into a disaster yet. So Russia's under pressure, and they're asking, you know, can you do anything about the Turks? Uh, Kitchener informed the War Council that the Australians and New Zealand's, that uh, New Zealand troops who were be, being called ANZACs, uh, A for Australia, NZ for New Zealand, the the men in Egypt weren't trained yet, so there are no troops available for use against the Turks, and that's when Churchill floated the idea of a purely naval attack on the Dardanelles. No troops needed. Uh, easy to retreat if it gets into trouble. We'll just use the Navy and take the straits from Turkey so that we can reach Russia and help resupply them. And boy, is that 
going to lead to trouble. That's going to lead to the whole Gallipoli campaign, which we'll talk about next episode. The French had their own ideas about adventures in the Mediterranean. Uh, They didn't like the Gallipoli project because it sounds like British gaining, you know, while we fight on the Western Front, the British go and steal stuff. Uh, But they had their own idea for a Balkan project. We'll go help Serbia. The only way to reach them is to make a landing at Salonika. This is a Greek port, which they captured from the Turks in 1912. And from Salonika, there's a railway that runs up the Vardar Valley into Serbia. So if we land at Salonika, uh, then we can reach the Serbs and help them out. So they signed a secret agreement with Greek Prime Minister Venizelos. This is a blatant violation of neutrality, which I find really funny. Uh, you remember how the British went to war ostensibly because the Germans violated Belgian neutrality. Well, now we're going to violate Greek neutrality and, you know, without any shame at all (laughs) it's a cause uh, it's enough cause for the war wasn't it yeah yeah so the russians objected to this plan they they were afraid that greece would enter the war and that they would defeat the turks and get to constantinople first and i love this too because well so much for russia helping serbia isn't that the whole reason you went to war was your save your little pan-slavic brothers And, and now you're saying no 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 don't don't help them So on October 5th, 1915, uh, one French and one British division uh, landed at Salonika, commanded by a French general named Sarai. We'll we'll find out what happened with Salonika later. But, you know, here's the war going in all these different directions. And not too far away was Italy. So I read a piece by Brunello Vigetzi. Uh, and he says that Italy was forced by circumstances to enter the war. So I had a pretty good laugh over that one. Forced by circumstances. <laughs> In July of uh, 1914, Italian nationalists actually wanted to join Germany and Austria-Hungary. Uh, they admired Germany, and they saw Austria-Hungary as a bulwark against the Slav advance. So you've got some interesting social Darwinism and and racism all mixed up in there. Um, But Italian foreign policy is is directed more in the the Mediterranean, right? We saw with their war for Tripoli. Uh, And and Italian nationalists saw France as the great enemy. And then you throw in ideas of glory and honor and, you know, making Italy a great power, et cetera, et cetera. So you had a a pro-war party. Only it was pro-war on on the German side. Uh, Italian liberals were more cautious and and prided themselves on being more realistic. So they were hesitant to break their alliance. They didn't want to fight Britain, but they're also afraid of being isolated. Uh, Catholic Italians sympathized with Austria, another very Catholic country. And all three groups... Nationalists, liberals, and Catholics were afraid of the popular parties who were immediately organizing anti-war meetings and demonstrations. And this brought back uh, painful memories of Red Week, which we covered in an earlier episode. 
The prime minister at the time was Antonio Salandra, and he's a right-wing uh, liberal conservative. Now, the former prime minister, the KG1, Joliti, uh, advised neutrality. But Salandra's uh, close friend, Sonino, insisted that Italy should fight with her allies. And General Cadorna, the chief of staff of the army, was already strengthening the defenses against France. And he suggested to the king that half of the Italian army could be transported to the Rhine to help the Germans. <laughs> the, the government, though, eventually settled for neutrality. Uh, technically, there was nothing in the wording of the Triple Alliance that compelled Italy to fight. They wanted to be on good terms with both Britain and Germany. Uh, San Giuliano, the foreign minister, saw other possibilities. He, he wrote, the ideal for us would be for Austria to, de to be defeated on one side and France on the other. Sure. That's pretty pragmatic, right? Let them fight each other. <laughs> Uh, only a few days after the declaration of neutrality, this was August 2nd, the nationalists uh, did a 180-degree turn, a complete volte-face. They, they now started arguing that Italy should attack Austria. And their their reasoning, their, their logic was otherwise exactly the same as before. Uh, honor, <laughs> glory, social Darwinism, make Italy a great power. But this time... We will seize uh, the Tyrol, uh, Trentino, and then Trieste and Dalmatia. Right. So, so it's like the it's like the Balkan Wars. Like we want to we want to get all the territories that uh, you know at their maximum extent had Italians in them. Yeah, Tyrol and Trentino have Italian populations. Uh, Trieste and Dalmatia are uh, uh, Croatian, but in years past had been under uh, the Republic of Venice. So we have, you know, a claim to it. The Liberals are still the largest party and they're split between neutrality and intervention. But now the government started thinking if they, if they, maybe they could extract some concessions from Austria-Hungary in return for staying neutral. As they phrased it, neutrality with profit and honor. <coughs> I love that. You're going you're gonna to blackmail. <laughs> That's a great phrase. Isn't it? That's our new policy. Blackmail. Profit and honor. Neutrality with profit and honor. It's, it's really like you, the, those three things, you can usually only have one of those things. <laughs> Not even two. Not even two. I don't know. Maybe neutrality and honor. I'm not sure. <laughs> so, Giuliti <clears throat> uh, could have toppled the government. He, he could have uh, returned to power. But we've seen this in his career before. He, he prefers to wait until it's like a sweet spot. He, and he can still influence matters from outside. So he gets the best of both worlds. He can influence the decision and he can let the conservatives take the blame if it turns out to be the wrong decision or if it turns out to be an unpopular one. And Joliti also came to believe, as many did, that uh, the alliances were, were fluid. He thought that Russia and Britain would come to blows eventually. <clears throat> and he seems to have thought that Germany would end up agreeing 
to let Italy declare war on Austria. I mean, this is some optimistic thinking here. Germany will let you attack their ally. Hmm. So in January of 1915, he published a letter in favor of negotiations with Vienna, in favor of the blackmail policy. And he confided to friends, if the war ends without our gaining any advantage, there will be trouble. So it was left up to Salandra's government to negotiate or to start an Italian war to recover, you know, Italian territories. Uh, Foreign Minister San Giuliano died. He was replaced by Salandra's friend Sonino. And now what happened now was mainly just Austria moved slowly. (laughs) There's no other way to put it. Giolitti, like, forgot how slowly Austria did things. So when Italy pressed them for concessions, the Austrians delayed, procrastinated, and these uh, negotiations, in quotes, went, they were dragging. So Salandra and Sonino got frustrated with the pace of negotiations, and they started returning to a pretty standard conservative arguments, right? Uh, war would reinforce the authority of the state. It would strengthen traditional institutions, improve the prestige of the crown and the army. Uh, best of all, it would only take you know six months or a year. And I wonder how they came to that conclusion, because it took you longer than that to take Libya from Turkey. And you think you're just going to waltz in and, you know, take everything you want from Austria in six months? Yeesh. And also, did they not see how the war went in 1914, especially on the Western Front? So now the Italians began negotiating with Britain and France. This is uh, March of 1915. Uh, On April 26th, they signed the Treaty of London. So Britain and France agreed that Italy would acquire uh, the South Tyrol, Trieste, northern Dalmatia, and several Adriatic islands. Uh, There was no mention in the treaty of Italy declaring war on Germany. I guess for Britain and France, it's enough that that they would attack Austria. Um, AJP Taylor says that the French were worried by the possibility that Italy would stay out of the war and conserve their strength while France wore herself out. So they're eager to have Italy participate. Uh, Salandra and Sonino didn't have the full support of their own party. And the treaty was uh, worrisome to the majority of liberals and Catholics. Now, interesting here, here's your honor again. Salandra didn't feel that Italy was bound by the Treaty of London. He stated his opinion that this was an agreement between governments, not between states. Kind of a convenient. What's the difference? Oh, I see. Like governments that come and go and elect like a different party or something. Yeah, this is this is an agreement between the Salandra government and the Asquith government and not between Italy and Britain. But now the interventionists, the nationalists, were organizing demonstrations. And this is where Gabriele D'Annunzio made himself famous. Well, I think he was already famous. Um, D'Annunzio was uh, an aristocrat, a poet, 
an orator, a journalist, uh, a, a big believer in Nietzschean ideas, and an adventurer. He flew in an airplane with Wilbur Wright, one of the Wright brothers, in 1908. So that's two years after Kitty Hawk, I think. No, when was Kitty Hawk? It was around then. It wasn't. It was. Couldn't have been very many. I can look it up. I, I, yeah. I think you're two, three years or something. Yeah. So Denuncio's a, a, a glamorous figure, and he's making passionate, inspiring calls for war and violence. Um, he was also a, a nationalist and irredentist. He wants the Italian territories back. A journalist, a socialist journalist named Benito Mussolini, you might have heard the name. Oh, God. Shifted from an anti-war position to a pro-war nationalist, irredentist position. So he modified his socialist outlook. Yeah, there was a lot of that going around, wasn't there? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He hasn't invented fascism yet, but here's where he, he made the switch from being, you know, uh, basically a, a reasonable socialist to becoming a nationalist socialist. He was uh, arrested at an interventionist uh, rally. Taylor actually suggests that Mussolini was being paid. By oh yeah, yeah, oh big time. That there's a lot of um, there's a lot of conspiracy and conspiracy stuff about who was paying Mussolini and for how long he was on the payroll and. Oh, you ran across this too. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. We, we, I'm sure we'll, <laughs> we'll have a lot to say on this podcast about Mussolini. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. So this, uh, this situation was too hot for Giolitti. He didn't want to resume power under these conditions. Salandra tried to resign. This is his way of getting out of the treaty uh, with Britain and France. But the king refused to accept his resignation. And then Salandra invoked what he called. Sacra egoismo, the sacred, that, the sacred demands of self-interest. I would say between profit, honor, and neutrality, <laughs> that one falls under profit, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's sacred. Self-interest <laughs> is sacred. So Italy declared war on Austria, May twenty-fourth, nineteen fifteen. Um, they weren't ready. <laughs> the economic preparations were inadequate, and. Uh, uh, many, if not most Italians, many were passive. You know, what has this got to do with us? You know, <laughs> their hearts weren't into it. Uh, a lot of money had been spent on the army, but the Italian armed forces were old-fashioned. Uh, tactical and strategic plans were based, uh, just like the French, on the belief that frontal attacks were ideal. And I, I can only shake my head at this. Like, Have you not been watching the war that you are joining and and why would you think that your army is going to do better than the Germans and the French and especially with your record in the colonies <laughs> as the yeah. only one that lost? Well, not the only one, but yeah, no, really, honest, yeah. <laughs> so General Cadorna looked at the frontier, uh, the Alps. I don't know if he had heard of them. Their, their mountains, uh, he saw one piece of relatively flat territory. This was near Udine uh, on the Isonzo River. 
you, do you care to make a prediction on on how, how well his attack went? <laughs> Not too good. <laughs> Ta- Taylor says that Italy's entry into the war brought few advantages. Uh, their navy cooperated with the British to keep an eye on the Austrian fleet. The Austrian fleet, by the way, never came out. So, non-factor? But the Italian Navy could not prevent Austrian submarines from coming out of the Adriatic. Economically, Italy was a burden. Britain was already supplying France with coal because the Germans had occupied northern France, the French coal fields. Now they had to supply Italy, too. (laughs) The Austrians didn't need to send massive reinforcements to the Italian front. And in fact, fighting the Italians seems to have been more popular in the Austro-Hungarian uh, Empire than fighting Russia. <laughs> wow. So instead of, yay, Italy's on our side, it's more like, oh, no, oh, Italy's on no. our side. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I'd say, you know, Japan benefited, Turkey didn't, Italy didn't. And, uh, uh, I I think Turkey benefited Germany tremendously. Oh no no I mean I mean in terms of joining the war like how you came out of the how they came out of the war oh, I guess also, benefiting themselves no yeah no, no. benefiting no, no, themselves no. profit profit versus neutrality versus honor uh, Japan definitely profited yes Turkey did not no committed suicide Turkey committed suicide and and Italy I mean Italy I arguably came out of the war reasonably well but almost in spite of their own efforts, it seems. That, yeah, as you, arguably. It, it's arguable in the other direction, too. Yeah. Now, there are some other countries that are going to enter the war, uh, Bulgaria and Romania. Both of them are being courted, are, are being uh, uh, cajoled, trying to <laughs> persuade them to enter on one or the other side. Uh, but I thought we'd save that until... The next episode, because it fits in with the the campaigns of 1915.